Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the key clarifications that Alistair McIntyre is going to make about his account of the virtues in chapter 14 of After Virtue is the degree and the ways in which it is Aristotelian. And we should specify from the very beginning before going into that account that there is no one single monolithic view of what it means to be Aristotelian. There's certainly a number of different concepts and approaches that fit within a kind of constellation, but anybody who tries to tell you that there's some platonic essence of Aristotelianism out there is definitely not Aristotelian and doesn't know what they're talking about. They may have gotten that from a philosophy textbook or from some other author. They may be imagining that there's only Platonism and Aristotelianism running throughout history. All of those sorts of views are bad history of philosophy and indeed bad philosophy in general because they avoid actually engaging the texts of Aristotle who's a very deep and complex thinker often difficult too I should add as well so there is what we can call you know sort of a generalizable Aristotelianism but its boundaries are going to be fuzzy and McIntyre knows this very well. He's already discussed Aristotelian virtue ethics in an Aristotelian way in the chapter 12, which is titled Aristotle's Account of the Virtues. And this is not McIntyre's first time approaching this. He's talked about it in his History of Ethics in many, many other places. So he knows what he means by Aristotelianism. And if you want to know what he means by it, you should read the other chapter as well. Now, he is going to specify for us the ways in which his account differs fundamentally from that of Aristotle. And then he's going to specify the ways in which he views his account as essentially Aristotelian. If you like to use the word neo-Aristotelian, that's perfectly fine. It's a common term in philosophical parlance. McIntyre usually just talks about his way of looking at things as being fundamentally Aristotelian. And he takes the plain person as a potential Aristotelian, we should mention, referring to some of his other essays. So how is the account not Aristotelian? Well, there's one big way that is very controversial in part because here in After Virtue, he says one thing and then he modifies it slightly, not entirely. He doesn't reject it completely, but he modifies it to some degree in a book that he writes three books later in the very important four book series of After Virtue, Whose Justice, Which Rationality, Three Rival Versions of Moral Inquiry, and then Dependent Rational Animals, in which he takes us back a little bit. So what is the thing that he's saying here? He says that although this account of the virtues is teleological, it does not require any allegiance to Aristotle metaphysical biology. So a very sweeping claim, no allegiance, no loyalty, no taking something on, no foundation in Aristotle's metaphysical biology is actually necessary. 
And you know, it's an interesting thing to think about. Let's say we didn't actually have the parts of animals or the history of animals or a few other things as well. And we just had, say, the ethical political works, meaning the Nicomachean ethics, Eudamian ethics, politics, rhetoric, and parts of the topics and poetics. Let's say we just had those. Maybe we also throw in on the soul as well. Would you actually say that there was some sort of metaphysical biology underlying Aristotle's treatment of the virtues and indeed his larger ethics? Probably not because you're not going to find too much of it in that text other than the references to like parts of the soul and higher and lower functions. So McIntyre is on to something and he's saying, listen, we don't need to buy into Aristotle's essentially outmoded in many respects metaphysical biology in order for this project to work. Now, later on, as I mentioned, he's going to say, well, maybe we needed some elements of Aristotle's metaphysical biology, but he's not endorsing, you know, a return to Aristotle on all these points the way some people do in their interpretations. So what does this mean? That the account is teleological, but doesn't require Aristotle's metaphysical biology. We can have other accounts of teleology. We can have other accounts of relations of means to ends or indeed of complex functions and what it is for a rational organism to prosper, to do well, and also by contrast to fail, to set up impediments to itself, to have impediments set up to it in terms of its matrix that it lives within of the family, of society, of culture, all these other things as well. That leads us to the second point. So here, McIntyre says something a little bit longer. He says, just because of the multiplicity of human practices and the consequent multiplicity of goods in the pursuit of which the virtues may be exercised, goods which will often be contingently incompatible and which will therefore make rival claims upon our allegiance. And by allegiance, he doesn't mean anything like a blind loyalty to something or, you know, foundationalism that you have to have this. He just means that, that they compel us, right? We have to choose between it. He could say prioritization, and that would probably be a better term. Conflict will not spring solely from flaws in individual character. And this is kind of an interesting thing for him to say. So conflict between these goods is not going to spring solely from, we might say, moral failures, a failure to develop within a human being. McIntyre thinks that social forces and factors and dynamics play a major role in this as well. And here it's interesting to think about, he might be overshooting the mark a little bit because Aristotle certainly recognizes that as well. He, in the politics, criticizes the barbarians for mixing up different functions, treating women as if they were just slaves. And he sees this as a sign in which their societies are giving people wrong-headed ideas about good and bad and all, all sorts of other things. He also, in, in Nicomachean Ethics book, Seven talks about various social practices, again, of barbarians, which lead to people being so damaged that they're unable to engage in the kind of moral decision-making that would even make them vicious. He calls this brutality. It's a damaging of the higher part of ourselves. And he uses uh, sexual abuse of children as an example in, in that. McIntyre's account is non-Aristotelian perhaps in that it places a much, much greater stress on the role of society and culture. And he wants to say, here's ways in which I differ from Aristotle. How is his account Aristotelian? Well, 
One key thing that he tells us here, which is very interesting to think about, given that Aristotle isn't the only person to bring these up, he says, it requires for its completion a cogent elaboration of just those distinctions and concepts which Aristotle's account requires. So it's elaborating the same things that Aristotle to some degree elaborated. Very often Aristotle would give us outlines which then are filled in. But if you look at the commentator tradition, you know, for example, Alexander of Aphrodisias or some of the other Aristotelians, you will see these fleshed out even further, which makes perfect sense given McIntyre's account of how traditions work. So what are these concepts? Voluntariness. The distinction between the intellectual virtues and the virtues of character. The relation of both to natural abilities and to the passions and the structure of practical reasoning. He says, on every one of these topics, something very like Aristotle's view has to be defended if my own account is to be plausible. Doesn't mean that we have to follow Aristotle exactly in saying, for example, you know, when it comes to affectivity or desire, orexis, there are only three main kinds, rational desire, bulesis, spirited desire, thumos, and appetitive desire, epithumia. Aristotle could be wrong about that, but there has to be some account that at least takes into account what's right in his views and then goes beyond it. And you can do this within Aristotle, this is a total side note, by pointing out that the pathe, the emotions, are also types of orexis and that proiresis is itself, the faculty of choice, is also a type of orexis as well. You know, look at Nicomachean Ethics Book 6. But these sort of concepts need to be part of the account and McIntyre says, we're going to do that. So it's Aristotelian. He gives a much longer discussion of how uh, his account can, as he says, accommodate an Aristotelian view of pleasure and enjoyment. And what does he mean by this? One thing that he's focusing on here is the pleasure and enjoyment that comes through achieving excellence in a practice, achieving internal goods, as we were calling them earlier. So he says... As Aristotle says, the enjoyment of the activity and the enjoyment of achievement are not the ends at which the agent aims, but the enjoyment supervenes on the successful activity in such a way that the activity achieved and the activity enjoyed are one and the same state. To aim at the one is to aim at the other. And hence also it's easy to confuse the pursuit of excellence with the pursuit of enjoyment in this specific sense. And he thinks that a lot of people make that mistake and thereby actually cut themselves off from the the development necessary to enjoy those internal goods because they treat them as if they are the same thing as external goods like prestige, status, power, and money. And a little bit later on, he goes on and talks about how John Stuart Mill, in making the distinction between higher and lower pleasures in his work Utilitarianism, is trying to get at something like the what McIntyre takes to be the Aristotelian treatment of pleasures and enjoyment. And he says something very interesting here that's worth looking at. He says, at most we can say something like this for John Stuart Mill's upbringing had given him a limited view of human life and powers, had unfitted him, for example, for appreciating games just because of the way it had fitted him for appreciating 
philosophy. And then he goes on a little bit further and he says that nonetheless, the notion that the pursuit of excellence in a way that extends human powers is at the heart of human life is instantly recognizable as at home in not only John Stuart Mill's political and social thought, so not just utilitarianism, but also on liberty and remarks on representative government and a number of other works as well. But he says, but also in his and Mrs. Taylor's life. And then McIntyre goes on and says something really interesting. Were I to choose human exemplars of certain of the virtues as I understand them, there would be many names to name. Those of St. Benedict, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Teresa, and those of Friedrich Ingalls and Eleanor Marx and Leon Trotsky among them. Notice he doesn't say Karl Marx, but that of John Stuart Mill would have to be there certainly as any other. And what he's saying is that an Aristotelian account or a McIntyrean account can explain why these people's lives were indeed virtuous in ways that those people, because of their intellectual commitments, wouldn't be able to understand the virtues. Now, the third thing that he says is that his account links evaluation and explanation in an Aristotelian way. Now, what does that actually mean? He tells us that from an Aristotelian standpoint, to identify certain actions as manifesting or failing to manifest a virtue of virtues is never only to evaluate. So you're not just saying good or bad, virtuous or vicious, or something in between. Instead, you're also engaging in what he calls explanation. He says it's also to take the first step towards explaining why those actions rather than some others were performed. So for an Aristotelian, the fate of a city or an individual can be explained by citing the injustice of a tyrant or the courage of its defenders. And he says, without allusion to the place that justice and injustice, courage and cowardice play in human life, very little will be genuinely explicable. So this is a third way in which he views his account as aligned with the fundamental viewpoint of, of Aristotle that we can sort of tease out from his works, mostly again, the ethical political works. And I, I will close here by saying one thing about interpreting Aristotle. Aristotle very often does things in outline and we often have to piece together an account from looking across the Aristotelian corpus, not just focusing on the Nicomachean ethics or just the politics, but reading the both of them together and reading them in such a way that they complement each other and bringing the rhetoric in and bringing the topics in and we could go on and on with this. And that is the sort of lens through which McIntyre is looking at this and comparing his account to that of Aristotle himself. So he can say that this is a essentially an Aristotelian account. And it's Aristotelian, we might say in closing this, in a way that's really in conformity with the spirit of Aristotle's own approach, which is dialectical. You take what works, you take what you think is actually still viable, and you pair off or strip away the other parts, and then you develop the parts that you're going to keep even further. And that's what McIntyre is doing in After Virtue. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.